trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a program for people who are willing to think outside the box. People who have become comfortable with the idea of being an outlier, of perhaps marching to the beat of their own drum. It's not exactly a popular thing to do, but uh, you know what? When your heart tells you, hey, this is the right thing to do, when your conscience says, I can be at peace because you are doing the right thing, you know what? That's all that really matters. So in the spirit of uh, inspiring those who seek the truth over approval, I welcome you to the show. I'm not here to tell you what to think, but I'm here to give you some great food for thought. And I'm helped each and every day that I do this program by great sponsors like Dixie Chiropractic and HSL Ammo. Also, Sewing and Quilting Center, Monticello College, Life Saving Food, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Well, the big news yesterday, of course, was uh, the Supreme Court in its uh, New New York State uh, Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, came down on the side of your personal right to self-defense. And it has, uh, how can I put this mildly? It has angered the left. Progressives right now are hysterical because they think that SCOTUS's purpose is to just validate what the left mob wants. And you notice there's always reverence for the courts, reverence for the Constitution, when it's something that, that backs, you know, some, some left-wing initiative. But when it's something that backs people's natural rights, and by the way, that's the rights of all people, regardless of where they identify on the political spectrum, well, they're not so happy. And I don't want to sound conspiratorial when I say this. I don't want to... I'm, I'm really not trying to bring more anger into the situation, but you've got to ask yourself... Why is the political left so determined that we've got to get as many people disarmed as possible? I know they're couching it in, well, but this is what safety is all about. This is about keeping people safe. I mean, one of the headlines yesterday, uh, this is from USA Today. Gun rights supporters ecstatic. Safety experts appalled. Supreme Court ruling reverberates across the nation. Gun rights It's not the guns' rights that were upheld. It's the rights of the person, the people, you and me, to defend ourselves, not just at home. This is the crux of this ruling. is that right to keep and bear arms extends beyond just where you happen to live, something that uh, New York State, among others, has, has really tried to to stay on top of over the over the years to make sure that, well, yeah, you know, we might grudgingly let you own a gun, but only if you keep it at home and only under lock and key. And by gosh, you're not going to carry it with you anywhere. In other words, you won't have it with you when you need it most if something, you know, ugly should, you know, try to impose itself upon you when you're out and about. But these safety experts, I mean, we got a pretty good lesson of what safety experts are all about over the last couple of years. You sure you want to trust those people? The same people who were wanting to throw you out of a job for not taking an experimental medicine? The same people who determined you're essential, you're not, and would close down your business and let you starve? 
How about the safety experts that uh, wish death upon people who didn't get the vaccine? I don't know. There's there's a lot of division. I really am try- trying to do my best not to to add to it, but at some point, you got to be willing to stand up for yourself. And I'm grateful that the court has has given this ruling that's favorable in the sense that it it does curtail state authority as well as uh, recognize curtailments to federal authority. Ideally, there would be no infringements whatsoever. They do away with the NFA of 1934. They do away with the Gun Control Act of 68. All that stuff would be done. But uh, I'm grateful. I'm grateful to see this happen. I wanted to give you a little clip here. This is just the reaction of a few people on the left, including the president and including the vice president, and, uh, and also some insight from Glenn Greenwald, one of the few people who I think still deserves to be called a journalist. Listen to what they have to say. A major win for the Second Amendment today, the Supreme Court ruling to overturn New York's restrictive regulations for concealed carry permits. But the left is already furious. Given everything New York City is going through, it seems... I don't even have the words. It's, like a death it's wish no, it's it's so it's such a middle finger to New York. I am disappointed in the Supreme Court gun decision. I think it's a bad decision. I think it's and I think it's not reasoned accurately, but I'm disappointed. Many of us are deeply concerned and troubled by the Supreme Court's ruling today. Um, it it I believe defies common sense and um, the Constitution of the United States. And then there's Keith Olbermann, rageaholic and former MSNBC anchor, who went a little further. He called for the full Supreme Court abolishment. Just dissolve it. And then he called Amy Coney Barrett just a paralegal. (laughs) After a year and a half of listening to the left lecture us on the importance of the balance of powers, the Constitution, our democratic institutions, and the rule of law... They disagree with the Supreme Court decision. And hey, let's burn it all down. Glenn Greenwald is a Substack columnist and Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. Glenn, what are the chances that you think Kamala Harris actually read today's opinion? Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, so much of the denunciations about what the Supreme Court is doing have no bearing at all on what they actually concluded about the Constitution. And what's driving me craziest is that whenever the court invalidates a law on the grounds that it violates the Constitution, as the court did today, the main argument that's being invoked is, oh, well, this law is very popular, or the Supreme Court ruling is unpopular, which is a complete perversion of how our entire system of constitutional republic is supposed to function. If all you do is tell people that whenever a majority wants something, they can have it, you don't need a constitution, you don't need a bill of rights, you don't need a Supreme Court, you just have an election or a referendum. The whole point of having a Supreme Court and a bill of rights is to say, Sometimes when majorities want something, it infringes on the fundamental rights of the minority, and therefore we need a Supreme Court to invalidate it. It's such a perverse form of reasoning to try and appeal to popular opinion to defend a Supreme Court opinion. It's a great point. I mean, you don't want the justices to know what's popular at all. You want them wearing non-trendy clothes. You want them going to average restaurants 
and you want them watching TV shows that aren't really that popular at all and you can barely find on Netflix. That's the kind of mindset you want as a justice, right? Yeah, I mean, it's amazing they, they were saying things today like the Supreme Court should be reading the room and <laughs> they should the be room. following public events because people are angry about gun violence. That's exactly what you don't want judges doing, <laughs> so reading true. the room. That's why they have life tenure, because they don't have to worry about doing things unpopular. Their whole job is to do things unpopular when the majority does something that violates the Constitution. Yeah, they're like, why can't you guys just be like politicians like us? You know, put your finger in the air and just kind of go with the mob. I mean, why can't you guys just go with the mob? <laughs> Unbelievable. Um, but I, I think we expect to hear more of this as this big row case is going to be decided. So um, just get ready. We're going to have um, our minds blown by some not very deep legal opinions. Thank you so much, Glenn Greenwald. All right. That was, a, that was a great clip. And look, and he's right to the, the reporter. I'm sorry. I, I don't watch Fox News, so I don't know. I don't know his name, but isn't it curious? Isn't it kind of clever that the Supreme Court releases this opinion that, uh, you know, affirms a, a right to keep and bear arms, including concealed carry, right before it releases what uh, is undoubtedly going to be a controversial abortion decision. Interestingly enough, I have heard absolutely no threat of violence from the political right. Assuming that Roe v. Wade is overturned, I don't think the right has said anything about, well, that's it, we'll burn this place to the ground, make sure everybody knows how angry we are. I think the right has already been very active, albeit not violently, but sorrowfully out there trying to, to stand for innocent life. And trying to affirm that, yes, even innocent life has value. But the left, whoo, doggies. I mean, they're, they're just openly saying, let's burn this thing down. Let's, let's just, let's get, let's take it to the streets. They are itching for violence. Look, I don't, I don't say this with any kind of uh, approval. But uh, I think, uh, I think things are about to get kind of bloody. And I think it's in a person's interest to... Have the capacity to defend yourself. Have training so that you know when it is appropriate and when it isn't. And keep in mind that this is a right given to you not by the U.S. government, not by the, the Supreme Court, not by the Constitution, but by your creator. Every living thing has a right to defend itself. And rights are useless unless you exercise them. So don't take it lightly. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. A quick shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage located in St. George, Utah. Although Heather can work her magic for any of my listeners within the state of Utah, or within the state of Idaho. Bottom line, if you are looking for a home loan, from a VA loan to a traditional loan to a reverse mortgage, count on the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage to get you the loan you need without delay. She's got decades of experience. She works for a wonderful company with plenty of financial clout to get the job done. You can call her at 435-703-4522. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386 and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. 
Well, you've probably noticed this, or at least you're starting to get the inkling that uh, the ruling class has decided that we're all going to go green. And part of the high prices you're paying at the gas pump right now are part of this effort to painfully force people to move in the direction of clean energy. And as noble as that may sound, clean energy is really not the goal here. Paul Rosenberg has a marvelous explanation. I wanted to share this one with you. Green means poor. He says, those of us who aren't mainlining TV and Facebook have a fairly clear understanding that the rulership of the West is in trouble. Their debts are far beyond payable, while the global East and South are starting to pull away. So having only two primary options, either system collapse or reduced standards of living, they're going to opt for the second. And the great challenge facing rulership then is to make the flocks accept being poorer or to get used to being poor. And to make that happen, they're promoting a new religion, which we can simply call green. Now, the real purpose of the green faith, he says, is for you to welcome lower standards of living. For example, sustainable agriculture, no matter how reverently its name is intoned, actually means lower crop yields and fewer animals per acre. All the rest is misdirection. Boob bait for the bubbas, as an old senator used to say. Sustainable agriculture is built around an insane posit. That is that bureaucrats a thousand miles away and with zero experience know how to use specific pieces of land better than the farmers and ranchers who've been working them all their lives. It is, as an old saying goes, so ridiculous that only an intellectual could believe it. Reason, careful examination, and mental sobriety don't apply to the religion of green, of course. The entire exercise requires their elimination. Now, he says, notice also that the new style of urban planning delivers poor housing. You've seen it. Apartment blocks clustered around train or bus stations running right to the curb with stores on the bottom and small, efficient apartments above. Spacious homes and lovely backyards have retreated into yesterday. For modern times, we must cue the Soviet apparatchik voice, you will live this way and you will be happy. Actually, it sounds better in Klaus Schwab's German accent because <laughs> he's probably one of the ones behind it. Green is all about getting you to accept this and without blaming your overlords. So he says, please try to hold this in mind. If the lords of green get their way, you will be powerless and beholden to your rulers for almost everything. He says, I urge you to consider how things have worked out for people who've been dependent on government for over the, over the past half century. That's precisely where green leads. That's where green must lead. If it does not achieve this, the rulers of the West stand in grave jeopardy. So he quotes a passage from his uh, subscription newsletter. Well worth sharing. As for calling green a religion, he says, consider that its adherents believe they are saving the world. They have heretics in the form of deniers, Satan figures such as Donald Trump, they share the dogma of consensus and congregations in the form of Facebook groups. The institutions they control train children in climate issues. They have outposts in the form of municipal planning committees. They have seminaries in the form of city planning and political science programs. The proclamations of their prophets, so-called sci uh, climate scientists, are revered, and their many failed prophecies are flatly ignored. So Paul Rosenberg says the purpose of green is for you to drop into a mania believing that your dogma, which only evil, hateful people could ever doubt, is more important than anything else in the world, including your own comfort and happiness. 
He says, I could go on. Their science is garbage, but this point needs to be made, and we all need to speak it regardless of heretic punishers. Now, you may think, well, he's being a little hyperbolic there, but no, I've, I've encountered it personally. A few years back, I, uh, I did an audition at KSL in Salt Lake City, and the host with whom I did an on-air audition uh, clearly was a true believer of green. And in the course of our conversation, he brought up climate change and was just adamant that anybody who doesn't believe that the climate is changing, that it's all, you know, human cause, you know, you're a science denier. You're just, you're ignoring the facts right there in your face. And, you know, I, I have to say it was hard not to, to become antagonistic simply because he was being very antagonistic. But I, I kept my cool. But I just, you know, I, I pushed back gently and just said, well, look. Just because a number of scientists have consensus, especially a number of scientists who are drawing government paychecks, doesn't mean that this question is settled and no one can ever question it. And his, his response was, well, why don't you ask a meteorologist then? And I, I was like, really? The ones who always get the weather right? The ones who are never surprised by, you know, how, how the weather turns out? Sure, I'll be sure to ask them. My point is simply this, though. There are a lot of failed prophecies there are a lot of uh, efforts to train the kids to be really tied into climate change. I mentioned this yesterday, and I'm, I'm going to come back to it again. There's a young man who attends high school in Boise, Idaho, who's running for a seat on the school district board of trustees. Climate issues are his top priority. This is one of the he one of the reasons he's running for the seat is because he ran he uh, was trying to mount some kind of a climate education initiative within the school district and felt that, uh, well, these school district adults just aren't taking us seriously. We deserve a place at the table. We deserve a voice. We are stakeholders, and we shall have, you know, the opportunity to shape policy. But he wants to really train the children in climate issues. So when, when people refer to this, when Paul refers to it as a, as a uh, religion, I don't think he's wrong, and I don't think it's, it's just, you know, denigrating the people who are pushing so much of, of green I mean, look, you're, you're feeling the pain right now with every tank full of fuel that you get. Are you ready to give up your air conditioning? My listeners in the St. George area. Yeah, it's, how do you feel about giving up air conditioning this time of year? Would you, uh, <laughs> I don't know what it was yesterday, 100 degrees plus, but uh, things get pretty miserable. I think we have to face reality, and the reality is, right now, as it stands, the world runs on fossil fuels. And and that doesn't mean we can't look for alternatives and we can't work toward better and cleaner ways. But this is not about, to, well, we're just trying to find a better way. This is about we're going to force you into what we think is a better way and, uh, you know, your health and your comforts, do I dare say it, your safety, be damned. I mean, I look, I'm not ready to give up refrigeration not just the air conditioning kind, but refrigerated food. You wonder, why is it that life expectancy is so much higher today than it was, you know, just a little over 100 years ago? Well, one of the reasons is it's a lot safer to go to the ice box, so to speak, <clears throat> take out some food, and have a reasonable chance of eating it without getting sick. Medicine has advanced. I mean, it's, I, I just, I don't understand green except from the standpoint it, it looks like it's a perfect way to get people under control 
especially when you get everybody in electric cars. And then you have states like California with these rolling brownouts telling people, uh, by the way, we'd like to urge our citizens, please do not charge your electric vehicle during this uh, this period of, of limited electricity. Seems like a perfect way to keep people absolutely under control and control their movement. So you can have concern for the planet. You can have, you know, a desire to be a good steward. But you put politics behind the religion of green, and it simply becomes yet another way to control people and to force them into a situation they would not choose to be in themselves, primarily to have a lower standard of living and to experience what it's like to be poor. Why don't we lift people in the other direction instead? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I would like to mention Dr. Ward Wagner from Dixie Chiropractic. Very happy to have them on board as a sponsor of the show. And if you or someone you know is dealing with pain, look, first of all, that's a real thing. I was a doubter once upon a time. There was a time when I was like, well, these people with back pain, they're probably just kind of milking it. It really can't be that bad. And then when was it? It would have been about seven years ago. I threw my back out and it wasn't anything major. Yeah, I was, you know, rappelling down a cliff and, you know, somehow threw my back. No, I stood up from an easy chair, took about two steps and suddenly I couldn't walk. I mean, it, it literally put me on my knees and then I couldn't even crawl. I couldn't sit. I couldn't stand. I couldn't lay in one place. It was so incredibly crippling. And and I will uh, confess, it was a chiropractor who finally got me back up and moving. That's, that's where the healing began. So if you or someone you know is dealing with bulging herniated discs, that's what I was having to, to face, or you have neuropathy, or maybe you've been in a car accident recently, and, you, and you're, you're feeling the pain from injury suffered in a car accident, contact DixieChiro.com. That's DixieChiro.com. Make an appointment with Dr. Ward Wagner. Let him work his miracles on you. Well, the defensiveness of the political establishment regarding anyone who questions the integrity of the 2020 election to me raises a lot more questions than it, than it answers. I saw an excellent article from Robert Arve. This is on AmericanThinker.com. Were the elections rigged? It might not matter. Now listen to what he's saying here. He says, elections will not legitimize any government if they are rigged. So he says, we must end the absurdity whereby a private corporation can be hired to count our votes and then refuse to prove to us exactly how it got the final numbers. If the system is not completely transparent and auditable, you can never be confident in it. You can be completely justified in suspecting that it is fraudulent. When the public no longer trusts those who count the votes, then the outcome will be chaos. Now, he comes right out and says the 2020 election was rigged, but it's not up to us to prove that. Instead of resisting audits every step of the way, the burden of proving otherwise falls on those who refuse to open the voting machines for inspection. There can be no innocent motive to hide them, nor can there, be, can there have been any justification for blocking observers from observing. Given all the evidence, there's more than ample reason to suspect the vote counters of cheating. 
The stakes are too high for them to simply call upon their accusers to prove malfeasance when the officials in charge of ensuring fair elections are the ones obstructing justice. Now, just as a quick aside, I've had the opportunity to uh, to produce a podcast for a, a number of different people working within the state of Utah. And, and there are a couple of individuals, uh, I believe there are two red pills in Utah. If you Google them, uh, you'll find a couple of women who are just, they are on this issue. And they have uncovered so much so far, but they've also been stonewalled in ways that would just be astonishing to anyone who's not familiar with the issue. And what's crazy is it's Utah's governor, Spencer Cox, and his lieutenant governor, uh, Deidre Henderson, who are stonewalling them. Well, we don't need to check these things. We don't need to go back and and audit these results. In fact, they they try telling them, you know, Trump won the state. What's the problem here? which is kind of an interesting deflection, right? Well, if you're just worried, you know, what are you worried about? Of course it was a fair election. Trump carried the state of Utah. But that's not what the question is. That's not what they're asking. Show us that these elections really, that the the counting of the votes was done appropriately. And for some reason, and this is what's telling to me at the state level, they're very unwilling to do this to the point that these, uh, these ladies who are asking questions have been uh, subjected to harassment. They've had threats made against them. And I'm talking official harassment. It doesn't look good for the officials. The optics on this are really bad when they're the ones, you know, trying to shut these people up because they're asking what are inconvenient questions. That doesn't inspire confidence in the system. And unfortunately, that attitude is present from the federal level right down to the local level. People who are currently part of the power structure really don't want you looking too closely at how the votes are counted. Now, that's not to say they're all corrupt. That's just to say that that's a, that's a very curious attitude for people who really believe that they're on the right side of things. Back to the article here again. Robert Arve. He says, uh, what matters even more is the next election. How much assurance do we have that it will be fair? And the answer is, so far, not enough. Well ahead of the November election, ABC News has already made suspiciously detailed predictions of the outcome. In fact, that news items that that, that they posted contained the words, oddly specific. ABC News deletes tweet declaring Dems will hold House in November and gain four Senate seats. Robert Arve says, my question is, Has the election already been decided? Have we already lost? Who can count the votes ahead of time? He says, those who claim that accusations of a rigged election are a big lie or are without evidence or a conspiracy theory. The rebuttal is, what will it matter? What the true outcome this year will be if on election night, half or more of the voters are persuaded that their votes have been stolen. In other words, give us a reason to have confidence in the system. That's going to require transparency, not just a pat on the head and, well, you run along and play now, dear. Everything is just fine. He says absolute assurance can be made, but only if there are no screens or computers between impartial observers and the ballots. Given the potential for fraud, there is no reason to trust a computer when a verifiable paper trail can be made that's all but indisputable. So there's only one reason to prevent this from happening. And Robert Arve says, you know what that reason is. 
Now, again, I'm not one who puts a whole lot of faith in voting in the sense that I really don't believe we're going to be able to vote our way out of this mess. Now, that's not the same thing as, well, I guess you're just giving up then, right? No, I'm not giving up. What I'm choosing to do is redirect my energy and my efforts to something outside of, of strictly the, the political sphere. And unfortunately, we have so many people, and I'm talking good people, freedom-minded people, people who are on the side of freedom and free markets, who've been trained to believe, but we gotta, we've got to get in there and get control of you know this, this political system. I think what we need to do, in my opinion, what we need to do is we need to concentrate on creating a parallel system, not necessarily political, but meeting the needs that politics claims to be meeting in such a way that it makes that political system obsolete. You get that? It's not a cut and paste. Well, we'll just cut and paste, make our own copy of it over here. I don't want to live under any kind of abusive system. I think we need to become much more adept at solving problems without turning to politicians and asking them, please, will you save us? Because they'll be happy to step up and do it. But it's always going to come at a price. And that price takes, in, in part, the form of taxes, which will be used to pay for whatever program they implement to, to solve your problem. I'm putting solve in air quotes here. But they're never really going to solve it because as long as you're letting them do that, as long as you're letting them exercise power over you and take money from you in the form of taxes to address a particular problem, that's job security for politicians and bureaucrats and functionaries. They're never going to solve that problem. I mean, that would put them out of a job. So focus on problem-solving in different ways. In fact, if I, can, uh, if I can throw a plug out here for my friend Keith Kelsch, what he is doing in southern Utah to me is, is one of the, the great answers. And it's, it's not the only answer, but I think it's one of the most effective ways to come together as community, not in a sense of, well, this has now become a power center and we're just seeking power over our neighbors, but as a local commonwealth of citizens who are concerned, who want to be involved, who, and this is the, the key, want to support each other on a voluntary basis. I believe you can go to localcommonwealth.com. That'll give you a, a nice introduction. But here's my point. There are alternative ways, but the best thing that we can be doing right now is in every way possible making the state and I mean government at all levels, as obsolete as we can in our lives. Let's, I know people, people talk about, you need to reduce your uh, carbon footprint. No, reduce your governmental footprint. There's actually a word for it. It's called agorism. Stop asking for permission for everything. Stop begging for permission. Well, you know, I wanted to cut my kid's hair, but I better go get a license, you know, so I can cut hair and, you know, be legal. Oh, the state will happily, you know, regulate you and and issue you a license if you go to it and beg for permission. Stop doing that. I'm to the point now where I think, uh, actually, I'm pretty sure my, my concealed carry permit expires next month. I have no intention of renewing it. I've reached the point where I'm done asking permission to exercise an inalienable right. That's after 30 years of having a concealed carry permit. I've reached the breaking point I suspect others have reached it as well. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. I know there's a lot of bad news, and the world can appear to be kind of a cold, cruel place right now. So I want to share something with you that absolutely lifted my spirits. And I've got to tip my hat to Barry Brownstein, a marvelous writer, a marvelous thinker, one of my favorite go-to people when I want to read something that I know is going to uh, bring light into my life as opposed to, you know, a sense of uh, impending doom. So for what it's worth, I'd like you to hear what Barry has to say with a, a powerful story about what Robin Williams taught us about kindness. Barry Brownstein writes, The late Dr. Kenneth Wapnick was delivering a talk with a complex metaphysical framework. He was explaining why we choose to follow our ego's voice despite all the trouble it makes for us and others. And a question came from the audience. I understand what you're pointing to, but I have no idea how to implement these ideas. Well, Ken responded, be kind. And then he paused. Now, Barry says, I don't know, but that the woman, the woman asking the question may have had a look on her face that suggested that's it. That's all you got. After a moment of silence, Ken added, We are so familiar with what we are thinking and feeling, but we rarely pause long enough to consider how the other person is feeling. And here he quotes Dr. Ethan, or he quotes, I don't know if it's doctor, it's Ethan Cross. Our verbal stream of thought is so industrious that according to to one study, we internally talk to ourselves at a rate equivalent to speaking 4,000 words per minute out loud. Dang. We spend a considerable amount of time thinking about ourselves, our minds gravitating toward our own experiences, emotions, desires, and needs. The self-focused nature of the default state, after all, is one of its primary features. End quote. So Barry Brownstein says, if Dr. Cross's research is correct, we often have little bandwidth, bandwidth left to consider the feelings of others. And we can become so consumed by our inner chatter that we think that's all there is to our experience of life. We become more spiritually mature as we learn to discern, but not identify with our disruptive inner chatter. Now, this research about our mental chatter is a useful prologue to uh, an essay about kindness in Robin Williams, originally published at Intellectual Takeout. In 2016, Kate Osher, a writer and attorney, told the story about tragedy and the kindness of a famous stranger. Osher's husband had committed suicide. Following his wishes, she was on a travel quest to scatter his, a- his ashes in places that had touched his life. Intending to fly with a Tupperware container of her husband's ashes, she encountered a belligerent TSA agent who demanded that she discard the ashes. As you can imagine, Osher's reaction was strong. Her hysterics attracted a real cop who, after examining the death certificate for her late husband, used common sense and allowed her to pass through security, Tupperware in hand. Still hysterical, she made her way through the throng of humanity at Los Angeles International Airport. No one seemed to care about her distress. Osher collected herself in an airport bar. There she sat, facing the wall, feeling alone with her grief. Then words of kindness came to her. Osher felt a gentle hand on her shoulder. She recognized the soft voice of Robin Williams, who standing behind her said, Miss, I just want to be sure you're okay. I see you're traveling alone, and I saw what happened, and I just really want to be sure you're okay. Robin Williams listened as Kate Osher shared her story. Williams' voice got even softer as he spoke words we now know were born from a felt experience. Addiction is a real bitch. Mental illness and depression are are the mother of all bitches. 
I'm so sorry for all the pain your husband was in. I'm so sorry for the pain you're in right now. But it sounds like you have family and friends and love. And that tips the scales a bit, right? Walking her to her gate, Williams got her to laugh by impersonating people we passed by. With a playful, not insulting spirit, Williams made fun of the TSA agents, especially the one who gave her such a hard time. Now, Barry Brownstein says, look, true kindness is inclusive. Mistakes may call for correction, but Williams understood they didn't call for derision. Now they were standing at her gate. Williams told her that she had a wonderful laugh and a beautiful smile, and they parted with a big hug. In Osher's words, his compassion sustained me during one of the most difficult moments of my life. Now, this was another day in the, li- uh, in the kindness office for uh, Robin Williams. Williams was a world-famous actor and comedian, but being kind and compassionate was his way of being in the world. Barry says, we don't, we don't know how many people noticed Osher's distress that day or how many felt an impulse to come to her aid but didn't. Right? You can understand, that would be awkward. He says, we can imagine why strangers could have ignored an impulse to be of help. Travelers moving along their flights may have thought, oh, I don't want to be a busybody. She may not welcome my intervention. I never have the right words. I have my own troubles. I don't know what her issue is. Maybe she's crazy. Kindness is love in action, observes psychologist Robert Holden in his book, Lovability. Robin Williams' encounter with Kate Osher is a story of kindness, love, and hope. By his actions, he reminds us that that in our nature is an impulse to connect with other people, despite our own personal suffering. Adam Smith, the father of economics, is best known for being the author of an inquiry into the nature and causes of the wealth of nations. In his less famous book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, Smith begins with a bold observation about human nature. Quote, no matter how selfish you think man is, it's obvious that there are some principles in his nature that give him an interest in the welfare of others and make their happiness necessary to him, even if he gets nothing from it but the pleasure of seeing it. Smith writes, we always have the strongest disposition to sympathize with the benevolent affections. So being kind increases our own happiness. Smith goes on to say, generosity, humaneness, kindness, compassion, mutual friendship, and esteem. All the social and benevolent affections when expressed in someone's face or behavior, even toward people who aren't especially, who aren't especially connected with ourselves, please us on almost every occasion. End quote. Barry Brownstein writes, Smith observed that there's a voice within, a voice of reason, principle, conscience, that helps us on occasion to place the happiness of others above our own. This inner voice, which Smith called the impartial spectator, teaches us that we are but one of the multitude, in no respect better than any other. As a consequence, we must always humble the arrogance of our self-love. Now, Smith didn't invoke religion to construct his theory of the impartial spectator, but many, but many have other names for the still small voice. No matter the name we give for this inner voice, we all know the voice that speaks for kindness, compassion, and love. It notices our selfishness, it offers gentle correction, and speaks of a better way to walk in the world. In contrast to the impartial spectator, we also know well the selfish internal voice, which cares mostly about the ego's holy trinity of me, myself, and I. And when we choose the guidance of our ego, impulses to be kind are dampened. Smith, as well as many religions and spiritual belief systems, would agree on this. 
every human being is born with an operating system that allows us to choose between the voice that speaks for kindness and love and the voice that speaks for our egoic selfishness. Barry Brownstein says Robin Williams taught that despite our own suffering, the voice that speaks for love can never be extinguished. Does not everything, the quality of our own lives and the quality of our relationships, depend upon which voice we listen to moment by moment? Man, that is, that is profound. And it rings very true. And I think it, it couldn't be a more timely message in the sense that right now there are a lot of people who are struggling, myself included. I mean, look, I'm, I look at the magnitude of the challenges that are building right now, and this is at all levels, okay, economic, political, spiritual, cultural. There's a lot of stuff that's in motion right now, and there's a lot of it that's, that's really moving in a very scary direction. So it's easy to feel overwhelmed by what we're seeing. The surest way to keep peace about you and to keep an even keel and, and to keep a handle on, uh, on reality is to look for those opportunities to serve people around you. And I think particularly look for opportunities to be kind because it doesn't have to be something big. Hey, I, uh, you know, rebuilt your truck's engine for you while you were sleeping. Hope you don't mind. I just, you know, had a little time on my hands and had my toolkit handy and thought I'd, you know, just kind of do a complete rebuild for you. You don't have to do something like that. Sometimes it's as simple as just acknowledging somebody's appearance or, you know, their, or their existence, rather. Don't discount the little things. And, and if I could share some advice, this is hard-won advice, but it's something that I have learned over the years and have, have gradually grown to, to, to practice on a daily basis. When you see something like, you know, say, for instance, like Robin Williams, you see someone who's struggling, having a, a very difficult time. If something speaks to you, if a, if a little voice inside you says, you need to reach out to that person and give them encouragement, it's almost guaranteed Within a few seconds, you're going to hear another, much more reasonable voice saying, don't do it. You're just going to be imposing in their private business, and they're going to resent it, and it's probably going to make you late, and there'll be a ton of excuses why you shouldn't. My advice is listen to that first voice. Listen to that first impression and act on it. Because when you do, that's when good things really start to happen. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Look, you don't have to be a full-fledged wrong thinker to benefit from what I'm about to offer you today. Because I'm not here to answer all of life's questions for you and I'm not here to tell you what to think. But I'm definitely going to share with you some content which I think has some value, is worth your consideration. What you do with that information, well, that is entirely up to you. So in other words, you are free to disagree with me. You're free to disagree with any of the other commentators that I either interview or share on this program. I just hope to, to get you thinking as clearly and independently as possible. Let's dive right in. There are a lot of factors behind a lot of the remarkable changes we witnessed in our culture this past couple of years. 
And I think it's safe to say we've seen some major shifts from which we're still trying to, to come to terms with, with how much has changed. Got an article here from Carl Nelson. This was in AmericanGreatness.com. What changes a culture? And the answer is free money is dangerous. I thought you'd appreciate this take. He starts with a quote from F.A. Hayek saying, I don't believe we will ever have good money again before we take the thing out of the hands of government. All we can do is, by some sly, roundabout way, introduce something that they can't stop. And in this case, Carl Nelson says, Friedrich Hayek's observation above would seem to be the holy grail of cultural change, too. That is, by some sly, roundabout way, introduce something that they can't stop. After all, that is how we've arrived at our current woke catastrophe. As for reversing gears, Bitcoin and like monies are possibly starting this disruption of our current monetary system. Well, it's been kind of a rough week or two for those holding cryptocurrencies. Parallel economies would seem to be be of some use in combating woke corporations, but like the weather, cultural change can be hard to create by itself, even though it changes all of the time. So what is true about the weather, though, is that high-pressure or static systems expand into low-pressure fluid systems. Analogously, uh, high-pressure static cultures will eventually deteriorate into more low-pressure fluid cultures. For example, it's often held that education and scholarly attainment promote innovation and economic growth. Well, this is not necessarily true. Educational citadels can also become quite static cultures. It's often thought that uh, education precedes innovation, or is it's more often the other way around. We cause something, then we study to understand it. Since individual initiative is more possible in a more fluid system, it would seem to me that we must find and secure a current reflection of the extremely fluid era and character of our own Western expansion if we are to preserve our nation as the founders intended. Now, Carl Nelson writes, The news for many of us, is that the settlers within a new territory necessarily adopt and establish the cultural mores of those territories. In his essay, Westerns Are Us, Vincent McCaffrey maintains that the themes of the American West, self-reliance, individuality, cooperation, trust, perseverance, and resourcefulness, remain with us as a nation. What remnants of the Western mythos endure will be the survival of American culture. This has been our heritage, and it is, for us, good news. He says the American cowboy was a small percentage of the American populace in its time, yet he defined the mores of a traditional American. At a certain point, the mores of an energetic minority determines the cultural fealty of the majority, both at work and leisure. Now, the bad news is that today, our youth are adopting the mores of the newly expanding territories of technology and government. From technology, notably Facebook, we have the developmental mantra, move fast and break things. From government, we get the existential, solipsistic solipsistic mores of regulatory bureaucracy, whose characteristics in keeping with Max Weber are hierarchy, job specialization, division of labor, procedures, advancement on merit, and fairness. Rather than pragmatic American can-do, Woke youth of an expanding organizational era enforce mores very much at odds with the traditional American mores of the expanding West. The new hurrah might be, go bureaucrat, young man! The IT newbies are mercenaries who create algorithmic disruptions of every sort. 
The regulatory wannabes polish their curriculum vitae at their best ivies, follow the rules, live and talk PC, specialize in bureaucratic, postmodern codes and indecipherability, climb the hierarchies, and now enforce a fairness which is as self-serving as it is virtue signaling. Their lives and livelihoods have been little like those of us who were raised in the 1950s watching westerns. And unlike the Western Expanse, these Kafka-esque social media, regulatory, and organizational anthills are not God's country. Delete the restraints of tradition or allow them to be deleted for you, and we suffer the maddening, woke behavior of our youth today. So what is to be done? Well, money nowadays is territory. Carl Nelson says vast sums of digital wealth have created new territory, but not a gritty reality. In truth the human race seems to have run out of reality. This raw new territory is more quantum than quotidian, as is whatever those with the money say it is. The realities nowadays are far more political. Whereas imagination and courage were used to tame the Western reality, spin is being used to tame and organize these modern political realities, which, like communities of spoiled children, spend, 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 reinforcing cultures of entitlement without the restraints that the physical realities foisted upon us. Boy, that's a great explanation right there. The mores within these fantasy expansions are likewise fantastical, contradictory, even inexpressible. Children are given the judgment to chemically alter their genders, but still must be told when to go to bed. Vaccines, which are actually genetic transfer technologies, apparently only work when the other person has been vaccinated also. The older vaccines protected the vaccinated. And what are and what women are cannot be defined, even by a Supreme Court justice. Our traditions and our patriotism were created in the crucible of physical reality for our survival. Whereas oikophobia, Western self-hatred, strikes as an effort to vivify the prevailing political fantasy. Free money, money given for value neither received nor produced, creates these fantastical cultural territories which operate by mores contradictory to the traditional, as one might expect, since their funding comes likewise from diametrically opposed sources. He who has the gold makes the rules. Oikophobia is really just a big word describing how to blame the right for the left's failures. Now, Carl Nelson says our entire national convulsion stems from the demons that free money has conjured. False realities are naturally paranoid, as would be any imposter, and go to great extents to defend themselves via fiat, suppressions, and coercions. We cannot predict where future opportunities will occur, as part of what creates an opportunity is the ability to recognize one. But we can limit those areas of opportunity which are fantastical and will imperil reality simply by withdrawing the free money. If you build it, they will come, offers the excellent and laudable corollary, but if you don't build it, they will stay away. To be more specific, who likes to deal with government? Who wants to live a lifestyle where bureaucratic hubris and regulations rule every initiative? If we don't want our culture to be like brie and wine at the DMV Friday evenings, we must of necessity stop governmental expansion and shrink the regulatory arena. About technology, it must somehow be brought into accordance at least with the civilities of the Wild West, that is, quick, sure justice and freedom of speech, the basic tasks traditionally accorded necessary government. Bullying cyber titans must be brought to heel in civil society. And what cannot be shrunk must be dismembered. 
For example, a civilized nation needs a well-educated population. We may very well need schools, but schools run and financed wholly by townships will certainly be more various culturally than those collectively run and financed by the federal or even state government. And those run by market forces will perhaps be more responsible than those run by towns. What do we do about mass school shootings? Well, the problem might be effectively decided on a school-by-school basis. So what is conceptually of national concern might be better addressed locally. If parents don't want their children taught by gun-carrying teachers, well, they can opt for a different school and vice versa. That's certainly what our founders had in mind when they opted to create a federal republic of states and citizens with inalienable rights rather than a federal democracy of mass opinion. They wanted a freedom of speech as robust as possible and a citizenry as free of government intrusion as possible. If we want to foster a more livable culture and enjoy the freedoms our ancestors died securing, we must necessarily have cultural expansion, which acknowledges the gritty realities of free speech, individual rights, free trade, and what is actually possible. How do we manage that? Well, with government, the answer is both hard and at once simple. Money is territory. So he says, I would suggest we feed the government no new monies, regardless of the declared necessity or even the laudability of these projects said to be using those taxes. A hungrier government will find the monies and redistribute them more correctly than the nece- as the necessities and reality dictate. Just like a hungry person will find the calories and then trust his body to use them judiciously. When squeezed by survival, a lean government should do likewise, which is to rule its citizenry as their constitution dictates. That's a great piece from Carl Nelson. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'd like to give a shout out here to sewingandquiltingcenter.com. You know, I have a mom who sewed. And yes, I was a kid who grew up wearing sometimes homemade clothes. You know, I resented it at the time. But uh, then I think it was in about eighth grade, I had to take a home ec class, and that involved learning to do some sewing for myself. And that was when I started to appreciate, as much as I hated those homemade shirts that my mom would make for us, she really put a lot of effort and work into it. And, of course, her sewing skills only improved as time went on. I made that one pair of shorts, which really were pretty crappy, to be quite honest, because I didn't know what I was doing, and, and called it good. I share this with you simply because there are people for whom sewing and quilting and embroidery are nothing short of an art form. And if you are or if you know one of those people, Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah, that's the place you need to go. Now, if you're within a 200-mile radius of St. George, really, that's the place you should go. You won't find a better selection of machines from entry-level machines for under $200 up to, you know, the $15,000-plus long-arm quilting machines. They've got it all. The technicians to service those machines, including the machines you didn't buy from them, to teach you how to use these implements, and, of course, all the supplies to make it happen. It's a family-owned business that's been in operation continuously since 1984. And Teresa and Eric Alsop are the current owners, wonderful people. So if you click on the link that I provide in my show notes, that's sewingandquiltingcenter.com. 
Well, as a political agnostic, you know, I really don't have a lot of faith that politicians are going to be solving any of our current challenges. Now, thankfully, not everybody thinks the way that I do, but I wanted to share this article with you from the Brownstone Institute. They have a pretty optimistic take on what they call the revenge of the locked down voters. And this I'm actually a little bit hopeful that they're right about this. In fact, I'm a lot hopeful that they're right about this, that people who learned and were paying attention over the last couple of years will take that with them to the ballot box this coming November. The Brownstone Institute says you might have noticed a certain political instability in the air, not just in the U.S., but all over the world. In a world in which people generally care about rights and freedoms, surely this was inevitable, however much the expert managerial class failed to anticipate it. Beginning in March 2020, much of the world embarked on a wild experiment to treat peoples of the world as lab rats in an experiment in virus control. The experiment failed and has left chaos in its wake. We are beginning to see major rumblings of change insofar as voters can make that possible. In the UK, for instance, Boris Johnson is on notice and more members of Parliament have come to realize and reflect the fury of voters. In France, Macron's hegemony is over with the arrival of powerful new parties at the gates. In the U.S., Biden's unpopularity is legion while upcoming challengers at all levels are motivated by a fierce desire to know how this happened and what to do to to prevent its repeat. The Wall Street Journal's Daniel Henniger has written a fantastic reflection on the big picture and growing upheavals. Portions are excerpted below. We would only add a major lesson of the last two years. The influence of sitting politicians has clearly been bested by the administrative state which in most countries imagines itself to be the true rulers of the social order, contrary to all democratic principles. This machinery needs a fundamental challenge if there will be genuine reform. Here's how Daniel Henniger puts it. Quote, The current global discontent with economic life is overwhelmingly a function of one other word, lockdown. Lockdowns are normally associated with prison riots and not the world's economies. One may admit that the first months with the mysterious COVID-19 virus were a time of generalized panic and governments defaulted to the epidemiologist's standard fix of social quarantining. But then leadership essentially let the public health bureaucracies take over their country's economic life. What's impossible not to notice is how the lockdowns exposed the intricacies of the world's market economy. We're hearing a lot now about long COVID, the physical aftermath of the virus, as debilitating is long economic COVID. Long economic COVID is why anyone you sit next to at dinner can dilate on the arcana of interrupted global supply chains. We're now coming to realize how the market economy's performance and benefits are are taken for granted. All those goods made, purchased, packed, and shipped were as reliably available as turning on a light. Actually, one of the things we've learned during this time is that even turning on a light isn't like turning on a light. Disrupt the always-on but complex power grid, as in Texas and California, and the lights stop coming on. This persistent post-pandemic disruption is the result of government choices. In 2020, the public sector told the private sector simply to stand down. When the pandemic lockdowns were extended deep into 2021 in the U.S., France, U.K., and elsewhere, the global economy's extraordinary complex grid of relationships fractured at every level. Layoffs were widespread, ending paychecks overnight. 
Trucking hasn't recovered. Airlines are struggling with flight-canceling staff shortages. Manufacturers can't fill orders for lack of basic parts, workers, or a reliable transport system. We have arrived at stupid. Governments in the private economy have coexisted uneasily for decades. But during that time, as often argued here, left-of-center politicians, notably in the Democratic Party, lost their understanding of how the private sector works. Some liberal commentators have worried for years that this self-imposed ignorance was turning middle-class wage earners into the collateral damage of anti-business policies. Well, the lockdowns just killed these workers. Past some point of the pandemic's policies of systemic closure of businesses and schools, the politicians had no clue about how to manage the mess they'd made. Mr. Biden and his party sent several trillion dollars of temporary income support into an economy unable to absorb it efficiently. We have ruinous inflation. Mr. Johnson's government imposed Mickey Mouse taxes, such as a 2.5 percentage point increase in the payroll tax to prop up the National Health Service. The cluelessness won't stop. As the energy industry attempts to right itself and restore production, some in the U.S. are proposing a windfall profits tax, as recently imposed by Mr. Johnson in the U.K. Great idea. Let's get rehired workers laid off again. Mr. Biden says he's presiding over a fundamentally strong economy. But as the economy finds its footing, the dislocations of lockdowns persist across the U.S., Small businesses say they can't compete for workers with corporations, which are offering inflated wages. This isn't just Labor Department employment data. Those small companies are crucial to the normally smooth functioning of economic life. Meanwhile, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, like King Canute commanding the tides to recede, has ordered the airlines to hire and hopefully train more customer service workers. Yeah, from where? The political backlash is coming from below. The long suppression of national economies has primarily hurt individuals at the lower end of the income scale. And where countries hold real elections, the incumbents are getting axed. In the U.S., the revenge of the locked-down voters is likely to return conservatives to power this year and in 2024. And he says Republicans should run on just five words, we will do the opposite. Again, this is Daniel Hanager writing in the Wall Street Journal. Now, I don't want to sound like too much of a doubter. I think he he makes some great points here. The only Republican that I see right now who actually is doing that, we will do the opposite, would be uh, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida. And again, I'm not putting my faith in politicians. I'm not saying they're going to, he's the one who will lead us to greatness. But have you noticed how most of the other establishment politicians, at least the, the ones in real positions of power, the Mitt Romneys, the Mitch McConnells, they sell us out every opportunity they get. So there's a part of me that really hopes that the voters do have their revenge. And I hope that the door is shown to many of the incumbents of whatever parties they happen to be a part of. They need to have the power taken away from them and never return to them. And I only hope that uh, the people who are elected in their place don't succumb to similar temptations and end up becoming part of the machinery. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I would like to recognize HSL Ammo as one of my sponsors. You know, in in light of the uh, Supreme Court ruling, I know that uh, there are a lot of people celebrating, hey, finally, you know, the Supreme Court made a ruling that actually um, protects a person's right to keep and bear arms. I was actually having this conversation with Spencer Worthington, who is the founder and uh, the owner of HSL Ammo. And uh, we, we both agree, this is a good thing. It's kind of exciting, you know, to see, you know, the Supreme Court for once come down on the side of individual freedom. And, and Spencer said something that I think is just right on target, pun intended. And that is, you know, it's, it's wonderful to see people avail themselves of the right to keep and bear arms. A lot of people out there, you know, buying guns, a lot of people out there buying ammunition. But one of the things you want to consider is get training as well. Safety training as well as defensive gun handling. You know, it's, I know it's, that, that sounds like, well, that's really a hard thing to consider. But, you know, if you want to learn how to defend yourself, you're going to have to learn how to win gunfights. Training is the way you do that. It's, the good news is the shooting sports are actually a lot of fun. There are many opportunities for you to improve your skills, improve your thinking, so that you can be competent and have that skill at arms. I mentioned this in the context of HSL Ammo because ammo is one of the ways that you can convert money into skill. And by the way, if you're worried as you look at your money and you say, man, I'm, I'm seeing, you know, my money's worth 15% less this month than it was last month or this year than last year, consider uh, investing in the other precious metals, copper, lead, and brass. They will hold value because they will be of utility and be of use to someone. Just a little something to keep in mind. Should a rainy day ever come? All right, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about finding reliable sources of information. Look, you understand, if, especially if you've listened to this program for any length of time, finding sources that you can trust requires a very serious commitment to truth on your part and a willingness to do your homework. Got a great article here from Jeff Minnick from intellectualtakeout.org. The Unsolved Mystery of the Missing Real Journalists. Thought you'd appreciate this. He says, suppose you were a reporter without an agenda, no axe to grind, so, so no political affici- aff- affiliation, rather. You never stepped foot inside a school of journalism. Even better, following in the tradition of old-time journalists like H.L. Mencken or Ernest Hemingway or Rose Wilder Lane, you never attended college. You read history, economics, and political science. You got hands-on experience working for several small papers and Internet outfits. And you wrote reams of prose under the guidance of some old-school editors who had no qualms about tearing apart your work and telling you when it was baloney. Now in your late 20s, you see yourself as a journalist, but with one mission. With but one mission, rather. To report facts. Who, what, when, where, why, and how. As clearly and as truthfully as possible to the public. You believe in research, in digging below the surface of a story, and then... In as unbiased manner as possible, you write up your findings and deliver them to your fellow citizens. With the money you earn and with the help of your spouse's income, you're able to survive financially. He's got that right, too. Writing is not a particularly lucrative uh, way to make a living. At one point, inspired by by Julie Kelly's articles at American Greatness, you decide to explore the January 6th incident at the Capitol. 
You spend much of your free time conducting phone interviews with those who were there. You look into their backgrounds. You watch video footage and read reports about police allowing protesters into the Capitol building. You even manage a few anonymous interviews with some of those officers, revealing some possible federal chicanery and stirring the pot of that so-called insurrection. Unfortunately, he says you're about to realize that your adversary as a truth seeker is not the American people. It's not even in the it's not even the swamp in Washington DC. It's the mainstream media. You approach some major newspapers and news outlets with the information you've gleaned, but they're not interested. Eventually your story ends up on some online site like the Daily Wire where it rouses a small commotion but little more. The story dies there. And you soon realize that the old adage, the truth will out, is as dead in the realm of journalism as the stories on sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein, Hunter Biden's laptop, or the corrupt ties between some American politicians and officials in China or the Ukraine. Since its founding, Jeff Minnick says, Americans have depended on an independent press to help preserve our liberty. We looked to those ink-stained wretches as watchdogs guarding our republic against public and private corruption, against lies and twisted truths. That press often failed in this mission. As far back as the Founding Fathers, we see dissatisfied politicians and other public figures complaining about an abusive press. Often these complaints were justified, but on other occasions they arrived on the heels of some truth a journalist had brought to the attention of readers. Occasionally, journalists in the past deliberately deceived the American public or else were themselves deluded. The classic case is that of Stalinist apologist Walter Duranty, who won the 1932 Pulitzer Prize for his coverage of the Soviet Union, but who turned a blind eye to communist mass murders and other atrocities, including the policy of farm collectivization in the Ukraine that left millions of people dead from starvation. Minnick says today, many Americans distrust the press. Years of the media's manipulations, the censoring or exclusion of certain stories, and the replacement of facts with opinions have erased that confidence. So much so that a 2021 poll found the U.S. news media ranks last in trust among 46 countries. Now that's a disaster. Not just for our major papers and television news outlets, which have experienced a large drop in readership and viewership in the last year, but for the rest of us as well. When we can't believe the news, which is supposed to be vetted, checked, and double-checked, we turn to Internet sources that at least give a different and seemingly more reliable perspective. One consequence of this misinformation and confusion is our sharply divided nation. The solution to this mess is simple and must come from our newsrooms. Reporters, editors, and owners should put aside their personal politics and prejudices and begin reporting the facts. When the Russians, for example, bombed some city in the Ukraine, just tell us about the event without adding commentary. Some might call it propaganda aimed at glorifying Ukraine. When gas prices are skyrocketing, explain that a large part of the increase at the pump is the result of the Biden administration's policies locking down our oil and natural gas industries. When Hunter Biden's vile laptop pops up during an election, don't sweep that dirt under the rug. If you want your audience back, report the facts. If circumstances follow, report the truth. That's how trust is restored. Easy peasy, as my five-year-old grandson might say. Okay, I think Jeff Minnick's got a good point here. And I don't know, maybe I'm at the point where 
you know, personally, I I have uh, so much distrust for heritage media at this point that uh, I really, I don't even give them the time of day. I, I have very little to do with, with reading anything that they have to say. Once in a while, I did stop and read the New York Times article about, uh, you know, two ways forward with guns because I wanted to see what their take was on the fact that, uh, you know, the, the Senate right now is looking to pass some pretty significant gun control legislation. And at the same time, the Supreme Court has just stepped up and swatted down a number of states' very restrictive policies that prevent people from being able to keep and bear firearms for personal defense. So once in a while, I will see what they have to say. But for the most part, I have come to understand most mass media. And by the way, this can include so-called conservative sites too. Yes, even Fox News as narrative managers. So I'm ever on guard for whatever information I'm consuming. I'm always asking myself, who benefits from the way that this is being reported? If there's emotional buzzwords or if there's some kind of judgment implied either in the headline or within the body of the story, I can be pretty sure I'm dealing with narrative as opposed to simply facts. Now, that's not necessarily a complete disqualifier that, well, then you can't trust anything that they've ever said or done. But it means that you have to be a fact checker for yourself. And I understand that that's not something that a lot of people feel particularly confident about. And with good reason. We're, we're told, starting at about age five, you've got to defer to the experts. Experts will tell you what's okay and what isn't. Someone in authority will hand the truth to you. That's not true. Truth is not something given to us by someone in authority. It's something we have to choose to go after. And the only way to finally hone your truth uh, discernment abilities is to continually seek after it. Test it. Prove it. I still love uh, Charlie Reese's advice of, you know, if, if someone asks you, well, what do you know about a particular person or a particular topic? And if your answer is only what other people have told you, then really you're just running on borrowed light. So if you can reach the point where you're not content to run on borrowed light, well, that's the step in becoming a clear thinking, independent thinking individual. And that doesn't mean you have to argue with everybody you see. It just means that uh, you are much more determined to find the facts and to ask the questions that will bring those facts to the forefront than you are with uh, trying to find a particular angle that favors your side politically. I hope that makes sense. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. This is my invitation, if you haven't already subscribed, to my daily show notes. Uh, You know, this is just for truth seekers. But if you want to see a a cornucopia of great information, links that you can follow, which will take you deeper and deeper into the various issues and stories shared on a daily basis, all I ask is go to my website, thebrianheidshow.com, click on the show notes, and down at the bottom of the page, you'll see a nice big subscribe button. All you have to do is click on that. It'll ask you for your email, and I will not share or give your email to anybody. I won't sell it to them either. But I will drop a copy of my show notes in your inbox every day that I do the show. 
Sometimes people follow up, hey, what, what was the link for a particular story that you talked about? This makes all of that possible. In fact, what it makes possible is you don't have to sit around and listen to me. If you really want to just follow up on those stories, this is something you can do. We'll cut out the middleman. Because frankly, not everybody has time to listen to me going on and on. Again, that's com. Hit the subscribe button at the bottom of my show notes. And then go, go after that truth like it matters. Because it does. Well, the sure sign that things are going off the rails is when you see justice primarily serving the interests of the state. And we've seen this a lot, but I have a very hopeful story out of Texas about a jury finding, (laughs) excuse me, that a city has to pay for the damage its SWAT team did to an innocent homeowner's property. This is from ZeroHedge.com. And it says, after a SWAT team wrecked an innocent woman's house, the city of McKinney, Texas, essentially told her, tough luck, and refused to compensate her. In a case that could have nationwide property implications, a federal jury on Wednesday awarded the woman $59,656.59 in damages, and more may be coming. Now, this jury award follows an April 29th ruling by U.S. District Court Judge Amos Mazant III, that the city's intentional and foreseeable destruction of Vicki Baker's house constituted a government taking that compelled the city to pay just compensation. The case marks a sea change in the law, according to Baker's attorney, Jeffrey Redfern of the Liberty-Minded Institute for Justice. Redfern says everyone agrees with the general proposition that the government has to pay for the property it takes. But courts across the country had held that this rule just did not apply to the police. But the police are part of the government, which this victory makes abundantly clear. End quote. Now, Baker's likely to receive additional compensation. The jury also found the city's refusal to pay Baker constituted a violation of her own of her civil rights, making the city liable under federal civil rights law, too. It all started in July of 2020 when a fugitive took shelter in Baker's suburban Dallas home, which had just under had just gone under contract for sale after she'd renovated it. Baker, who had recently beaten cancer and was retiring to Montana, notified police and a standoff ensued. Eventually, McKinney police decided to attack the house with a Bearcat armored vehicle, breaking windows in their frames, destroying the garage door, leveling the backyard fence, knocking down the front door and firing approximately 30 tear gas containers into the home, which broke drywall. Baker's daughter's dog was blinded and deafened in the attack when police entered. Well, they found the fugitive had already committed suicide. Baker says, I contacted the city of McKinney and asked how to file suit against them for recovery. I was told there was absolutely no possible recovery that the city never paid such a claim and had no intention of doing that. Now, naturally, Baker's homeowner backed out of the deal. So Baker proceeded to spend months and tens of thousands of dollars putting the house back in order. The SWAT team's extensive use of tear gas meant that in addition to the damage already described, she had to hire a hazardous materials remediation team to clean the entire house. Carpets had to be replaced to cover the expense. She withdrew money from her IRA and ran up over $20,000 on her credit cards. Her repeated follow-ups with the city culminated in a letter from an entity that manages liability claims for Texas governments. It read, Based on the facts, we have concluded that there is no liability on the part of the city or any of its employees. 
per our discussion, the officers have immunity while in the course and scope of their job duties. For this reason, we must respectfully decline this claim in its entirety. Now, I'm just going to pause for a minute and say, okay, put yourself in her, in her shoes. Is this one of those cases where you could just shrug your shoulders and say, well, sucks to be me, you know, but uh, hey, at least those officers went home safe. See, destruction by government action is a standard exclusion, apparently, in homeowners insurance policies. If the city of McKinney didn't compensate Baker, she would have to bear the entire cost of the SWAT team's mayhem. This is where the Institute for Justice stepped up, a national civil liberties law firm on a mission to end widespread abuses of government power and secure the constitutional rights that allow all Americans to pursue their dreams. The Institute for Justice worked with Baker to file a federal lawsuit back in March of 2021 against the city, arguing that the decision to wreck Baker's home without compensation violated both the Texas and the U.S. constitutions. Attorney Jeffrey Redfern in an Institute for Justice video that explained the case said the Supreme Court has repeatedly held that the Fifth Amendment's takings clause was designed to bar government from forcing some people alone to bear public burdens, which, in all fairness and justice, should be borne by the public as a whole. Now, Will Aronin from the Institute for Justice said pursuing a fugitive is a legitimate government interest, but if the government deliberately destroys innocent people's property in the process, those people must be compensated. Baker said, my priority has always been to make sure that cities like McKinney cannot treat other people the way I've been treated. I expect today's victory to send a message to governments across the country that they have to pay for what they break. Now, I know there are some law and order types who will probably chafe at that. Well, it's not fair. And these officers are just doing their jobs and so forth. I don't know, man. Put it in front of a jury. And I'm talking, you know, a civil jury. This isn't a criminal complaint, but you put it in front of a jury. Would they say the preponderance of the evidence uh, indicates, yeah, the, uh, the government should have some responsibility for the damage that it does, even if it is in pursuit of a fugitive? I know how I would vote. Guess that doesn't mean everybody else would too, but I would love to see this same thing applied to civil asset forfeiture too. Because there are way too many police departments out there who are police agencies, I should say, who still operate under the idea of, well, if we find you with a large amount of cash, and sometimes they are snooping about looking for cash. Well, do you have any, uh, do you have any cash in your vehicle? I'm telling you, if somebody's asking you that question, they're fishing. They are they are tossing a line in and just seeing what they might be able to drag out of you. Because more often than not, they'll take it. Well, it's suspicious if you have more than this amount, uh, you know, $5,000, $10,000, $100,000. That's suspicious. That's evidence of some kind of criminal activity. Or so they'll tell you. And so they'll take it on the presumption that you must have got that somehow, you know, through through illegal means. And then the presumption of innocence, of course, is taken from you. In fact, they, technically, what they're doing is they're saying the money itself is guilty. So it's not even you that they're, they're, they're taking into custody. It's the money. But somehow that money gets redistributed and gets passed around and basically becomes a type of booty. So, you know, when you hear people sometimes refer to some police agencies as road pirates, that's the kind of stuff they're talking about. 
And to force a person to go to court, spend tens of thousands of dollars on lawyers to prove to, that, uh, that I didn't uh, get this money through dishonest means, it's just not right. Now, I know there are those that say, well, Brian, but what if, uh, what if some, you know, what if somebody working for, you know, some drug dealer or the cartels is moving, you know, a quarter of a million dollars in cash and they get popped with it, but there's, you know, there's no other evidence of crime, no drugs, no guns or anything, just there's a large amount of cash. Do you really want to let that uh, go through, you know? Would you really like to let the cartel keep it? Well, my response is prove that it's actually the cartel's money. Prove that it's that it's actually dirty money. Because that's where the preponderance, or I'm sorry, that's where the uh, burden of proof lies is on the accuser, on the state. Otherwise, you get examples where, you know, a, a guy has $40,000 in cash and is going to buy, you know, plants for his nursery, and gets stopped by police and the cash gets confiscated. Well, you know, for all we know, he's probably just carrying it for some drug dealer. I would rather see the drug dealers keep their quarter million dollars than see innocent people robbed by someone wearing a state costume and presumably acting under color of law. Now, maybe that seems harsh. Well, we got to give our p- police the tools they need to stop crime. No, they need to do the work of policing which involves developing, you know, reasonable articulable suspicion and probable cause and getting search warrants where necessary and not taking the low road and particularly taking people's property without due process. It just invites bad things when you allow them to slip off that leash. This is The Brian Hyde Show.